All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. Y'all aren't awake yet. The coffee's over there. Feel free to go grab it. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. I've got a cold, so you're going to have to put up with that this week. As we study the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, so grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up. Somebody will bring you one. We've got some copies in the back. We'd love to hand you a copy of the Scriptures. They're on the way. Hebrews chapter 3. I'll give you a second to find. Uh, they got a few hands up, up front over here on my right, your left. <clears throat> Katie's grabbing them. She's on top of things. Um, we're, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and as we study, just a quick introduction. If you haven't been here over the last few weeks, one of the things you're going to find is that this book is all about the Old Testament and then how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament. In the midst of this book, it's going to seem at times as if the writer is a little dreary or maybe a little tired or under pressure. At first, it doesn't seem like the most optimistic book because it's a book in which he's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted. And so if you think of Jesus' words when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That could be a theme or a thesis for this book. In fact, the thesis that we've chosen is Jesus is better. And the writer is trying to point this group of people to the fact that no matter what opposition and persecution, no matter what tests come against you in this life, you won't be overcome because Jesus is better. So we're looking at chapter 3. Today we're just looking at, at about six verses, verses 7 through 12. If you would, follow along with me as I read. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. The writer writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's quoting from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These are the words of the Lord. I think in all of our lives, there's a deep desire if we know Jesus, if we're following Him, if we've surrendered our life to Him, there is a deep desire to draw closer to God. But sometimes in our life, we unknowingly put up walls that keep God out of our lives and out of our hearts and that keeps God far away from us. Today, I want to share a pretty simple message with you from this text that will challenge you to evaluate not how much you know and not even what you do. But the message today is going to challenge you to evaluate the receptivity of your heart. How receptive are you to hearing God's voice and following His ways? We don't talk about that a lot. Today we're going to look at, the title of today's message is Tender Hearted. 
tenderhearted. The bottom line or the big idea for today is simply this. Times of testing are meant to soften our hearts and strengthen our faith. Times of testing in our lives are meant to soften our hearts and to strengthen our faith because we need to draw closer to God. We need to expose our inadequacies and our neediness. That's what times of testing and trials do for us. They show us that we are in need of a Savior. His name is Jesus. And so as we get into this text and look at this Old Testament passage from Psalms that the writer is reminding the the Hebrew people of, this group of Jewish Old Testament believers who have now come to follow Jesus, so they're now Jewish Christians, he's reminding them of stories from their past. And he's saying, be careful. Don't allow your heart to get hard. And he begins to tell this old story. But in order for us to understand this text and how we can be tenderhearted, we first have to understand, what does the word heart mean? Because when you look at that word heart in the Scriptures, It means so much more than what we think of the heart mechanically functioning in our chest today. The word heart occurs over a thousand times in the Bible. The term denotes the center of a person's physical, emotional, intellectual, and even moral activities. Now think about that. Physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral Now, I'm going to put about three verses on the screen for you. And as I read them, I want you to think. When it speaks of the word heart, is it talking about their physical heart, their emotional, their intellectual, or their moral activities? So the first one, Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Could speak to a lot of things, couldn't it? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That speaks to intellect. It speaks to emotion. speaks to morality. Look at the second one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That speaks again to intellect, to moral, to emotion. The last one. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. You, you may be familiar with Proverbs 4, 23. Again, it doesn't speak to just one singular aspect of who we are, but it is broad in encompassing our true self, who we are when no one's really watching, our motivations, our passions, our beliefs, our feelings, our desires, our intellect, all come from the heart. So when we talk about being tender-hearted, we have to think about each of these, physical, emotional, moral, And today, as we talk about being tenderhearted, I want to share with you three keys to stimulate a tender heart toward God. Three simple keys to stimulate a tender heart toward God. Because the whole purpose of this passage is don't be hard-hearted. Don't turn away from the living God. The passage is a warning and a call to action. It's a warning for those who are tempted to turn away from God because of trials, but it's also a call to action for those in the faith to allow their trials to soften their hearts and to turn them to God. Now, some of you came here today and your life feels like it's just been one trial after another. 
If you're really honest, some of you are here today and you struggle to believe that God is with you or that anything good could come from your trials. Some of you struggle and you question God, wondering if he really loves you because you look at all the tests that he's placed in front of you. And today the writer of Hebrews is going to remind each of us that times of testing in our lives are meant to soften our hearts and to strengthen our faith and to draw us closer to God. The context of, of this um, these verses in chapter 3, the author, I've already said, he's quoting from Psalm 95. And then the psalmist is actually retelling a story uh, from the Exodus in which the children of Israel left Egypt. If you know the narrative of Scripture, then you're very familiar with the fact that the children of Israel grew to be this great nation. And it was Joseph who then led them into Egypt And as God blessed them, then this huge people of over a million people were kept in captivity and slavery for over 400 years. And the writer in Psalms is speaking to some of the story that took place. A time when the children of Israel actually doubted the goodness of the Lord. It comes from Exodus chapter 17, if you care to go back and read it later. It was a time when Israel doubted. They were without water, and they were ready to stone Moses to death. They were done with Moses. They were ready to go back to Egypt to find a new leader, all because they were without water, and they were accusing God of bringing them into the desert in order that they would simply die. And the story ultimately reveals their mistrust in the Lord. The times of testing for them and for each of us, are a type of crossroad, if you will, that reveals the the authenticity of our faith. Will our hearts be softened toward God when we're tested? Or will we become more receptive and grow closer to Him? Or will we become hard-hearted and fall away? That's what the writer's addressing here. Now, understand this story. The story that we're looking at today, it took place just after the crossing of the Red Sea. So if you're familiar with the Exodus and that amazing story as the people, uh, the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they're at a place that Moses named Massah and Meribah because the, the people tested the Lord and quarreled or contended with God. So they tested God. They quarreled with God. This was at a point, if you think about their story, it was only about three months after they had come out of Egypt. Okay, so let me paint just a quick picture for you of all that the Lord had done in these three months for the children of Israel. Think with me for a moment. He had spared their firstborn sons and animals when they left Egypt. If you remember the Passover meal that they ate and they spread blood over the doorpost in all of Egypt that morning as they awoke, there were screams Because all of their firstborn sons and all of their firstborn male animals were dead. But the children of Israel had been spared. 
Then as they left Egypt, they literally sacked Egypt of their wealth. As people were leaving, it was as if the Egyptians were just heaping their treasures upon them, saying, please leave us. We have nothing left. You've brought nothing but disease into our lives. You've brought nothing but terror. Now you've killed our children. Please leave us. And so they're paying them off in order to leave. They pillage the city as they leave. They're led by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. As God personally leads them and shows them the way to go. God drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He turns bitter water sweet so that they could drink it. All these things have happened. God brought quail into the camp every evening in order that they would have meat because they complained, we don't have anything to eat. So he brought quail into their camp. And then every morning as the dew would begin to dissipate, there would be manna that would be left. It was little flakes of bread so that they would have bread to eat. God had provided for them in every way. But none of it was enough. And that's something that I think we need to hear and listen to in our lives because we live culturally in a context where it's never enough. It's kind of the story of America. We have time-saving gadgets. We have more wealth than we've ever had before. Technology gives us more opportunity than we've ever had before, but it's never enough. And that should be a word of warning to us if we sense within our hearts that we're never content. For the children of Israel, it was never enough. And God moved them to a place without water, and they grew very mistrustful. They asked this question. They said, did God bring us out in the desert to die? But what really happened is that their circumstances caused what was in their hearts all along to rise to the surface. That's what a test does in our lives. A test reveals what we really know and what we really believe. Any of us can follow God on a good day. Any of us can love our neighbor and be a blessing to other people when everyone's watching. But how do we react when a test comes against us? See, trials are one of God's best tools of sanctifying us. And some of you don't like to hear that, but it's true. Not that God desires for evil, to happen to us. God never brings evil or desires for evil to come against us. He's not a creator of evil. Yet in a sinful, evil, and fallen world in which we live, God is almighty. And he uses disasters, and he uses disease, and he uses some of the worst stuff of life in order to soften our hearts and to draw us close to him in order to gain our attention. The first key to stimulate a tender heart toward God, we're going to see this from the text and from Moses' story, is to humble yourself. The first key to stimulate a tender heart toward God is to humble yourself. There's a difference between questioning God and testing God or rebelling against God. The only time in Scripture where we're instructed to test God We see in Malachi 3 where God says, hey, test me now, says the Lord. You you test me and you giving of the tithe and see if I won't pour out a blessing upon you so much that you won't even be able to receive it. And so God says, yeah, you can test me. You can test me in giving and see if I'll 
reward you're giving, he's speaking in the book of Malachi to the drought that had become over those people. And he says, as you give to the temple, as you put food in my house so that the priest will be able to eat, there will be a blessing. I will pour down rain upon you so much that you won't be able to receive it. That's the only time in Scripture where we're instructed to test God. When you think about humbling yourself, what does it look like to humble yourself before the Lord? It's not wrong that we question God at times. We say, God, I don't understand this. Life is filled with difficulties. Life is filled with trouble. Life is filled with questions that will go unanswered in this lifetime. If you're waiting on God to answer every one of your questions before you surrender and begin to follow Him, you'll never have a tender heart toward the Lord. There are some things in this life that we will not come to understand this side of heaven. We simply won't. It's why faith is a part of our lives. But God is so very gracious to us in that He does sometimes pull back the curtain just a bit. And as time goes by and He brings healing into our lives and He humbles us, we get to see the way in which He uses even terrible, disastrous things for our good and for His kingdom. As we humble ourselves, there's a couple of quick things I want to share with you. You say, how do you humble yourself? Hey guys, I'm, I'm a lot, I want to grow in humility this year. I think I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> like that doesn't work, right? <laughs> how do you humble yourself? The first thing that we, first way in which we can humble ourselves is just simply to turn to God in prayer. To slow down and turn to God in prayer. What do you do when you face tests and trials? What's your first um, mode of operation? Do you complain? Do you call somebody on the phone? Do you grumble? Do you say, why me? Do you blame Satan? Sometimes it is Satan. Or do you go to God in prayer? When we go to God in prayer, it instantly has this way. It's one of the quickest resources we have in order that God, that we would experience humility. How did God teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You just begin to reflect on some of those words within the Lord's prayer. And you haven't heard a single thing about yourself yet, have you? It's humbling. God, you're holy and I'm not. Your desire and your greatest glory and my joy is that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven before my own will. Oh, by the way, give us this day our daily bread. We're getting there. Now we're finally ready to understand not what our wants are, not what just our desires are, but what our needs are. And we're able to pray rightly. It humbles us when we pray. The second thing that we see, so that's what Moses did. I'm not just making this up. Moses, if you go back to, um, if you go back to Exodus and, and you look at Exodus 17, you'll see that Moses quickly turned to God in prayer. We don't have time. I wish we had time to read the whole story. But the people are ready to stone Moses. They're like, we are so over you. We're ready to choose a new leader. We're going to stone you. We're going to head back to Egypt. And, and as they complain, Moses turns to God in prayer. He says, God, what do I do? I'm helpless. The second thing we see is that Moses 
was more concerned for the Lord's reputation than his own. If you want to be someone who's humble, be more concerned about God's reputation than your own. It's amazing if you go to Numbers 13 and look at what takes place as the children of Israel continue to fight against the Lord. They get ready to move into Cana, this land that God has given them, this land that is described as a land that flows with milk and honey. It's a wonderful land. It's a beautiful land. It's a land that God is graciously going to offer to them. And as they send 12 spies in, 10 of those spies come back and they say, oh, it's, it's just too much. We can't, we can't go there. And as they come back, two of the spies say, you know what? No, we we can take that land. Yeah, there's giants in the land, but God has sent us and he's given us this land and we can take it. And that's what the writer in Hebrews is talking about when he says, for 40 years, I made them to wander in the desert because they didn't trust me. Now, I do want to read to you from Numbers 14. Listen to the way in which Moses cared more about God's glory than his own. Listen to this prayer that Moses prayed to the Lord in Numbers 14 and verse 11. This is amazing. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I'll strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. I am tempt, I'm, I'm scared to know how many of us would respond if God offered us, gave us that offer. I'm going to disinherit all these people and I'm going to make it about you. I'm going to make you the hero of the story. Listen to Moses' response. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he's killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you've promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses was more concerned with God's glory than he was with his own. And he said, God, please don't wipe out this people because then all the nations of the earth who are looking at us, they're going to think that you're not great. They're going to think that you're not glorious. God, please forgive them, not for me and not for them, but for your namesake. What would it be like if we lived lives like that? I encourage you, go back and study Numbers 14 this week. If you want to know, man, I want to know how to pray. Pray like Moses prayed. Pray for the glory of God. God, not my will be done, but your will be done. We live in a society today of people who 
for the most part, think it's all about them. Some people call it the selfie society. Today, we're all about selfies. And selfies aren't all bad. Like, we all take them, right? But selfies aren't all good either. Because we can easily become confused believing that the kingdom of God marching forward means my health and my wealth and my dreams come true. And we can easily become so self-focused, even in the things that God calls us to. The truth of the matter is that some of our dreams aren't worth dreaming. I hate to rain on your parade, but some of your dreams are so selfish and so downright conceited they're evil because God says we can only have one master. And we'll either love ourselves or we'll love him. And God calls us to follow after him, to care more for his glory than we do our own, that he would be the master of our lives. And that means we live with a much bigger picture than the picture of self or the picture of selfie. But we live with a picture in which we may face trials that seem no good to us, but God will sometimes call us into those trials because he has a grander story at stake. Sometimes a grander story that we will never even see the results of in our lifetime. Do we love the Lord enough that we would follow him and have the kind of faith it takes that without even seeing the results, we would say, God, for your name's sake and for your glory, I will follow you. I'll be faithful. I'll live the story that you've called me to, to humble ourselves Really quickly, I'm going to finish up with the last two points. The second key to stimulate a tender heart toward God is to remember His provision. To remember His provision. When you hear that, you may think, man, I feel like you talk about remembering God's provision every week. I sure hope I do. I think it's one of the keys to the Christian life is that we would see the generosity of God and that it would lead us to be a generous people, that we would remember with incredible gratitude that we would live lives that are rhythmic in the way that we are grateful daily for God's provision in our lives. And all throughout the story of the scripture, one of the things that we see about the children of Israel is that they forgot the Lord. Over and over again, they forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord's ways. They forgot the story of what the Lord had done. And all throughout the scriptures, we see God giving us particular ways in which he calls us to remember. So the Passover, why did they celebrate the Passover? Because they needed to remember. They needed to remember that God had freed them from Egypt. And they needed to remember and see that the way in which God had freed them from Egypt was only a shadow of the rescue that was to come, that Moses was only a shadow of Jesus in the way that Jesus would free us from the spiritual slavery that we were in. They needed to remember. Why did God tell them, take those 12 stones, Joshua, when they came out of the, uh, red, out of the Jordan River onto dry land? Why did he instruct Joshua to say, take those 12 stones? Because Joshua was leading a group of people who didn't remember. They weren't there. During that time of wandering in the desert, and during that time of resisting God and being hard-hearted, God had killed all those people away. Only Joshua and the two spies were left, along with all these people who had been born during that time, and all of these people needed to be reminded of what God had done in order that they would trust what he would do in the future. And so they 
12 stones they put up. They say, let this be a testament. Remember this. What does Jesus tell us about the Lord's Supper? He says, do this in remembrance of me. We are a people who easily forget. We're like spiritual teenagers. Teenagers have one foot in the world of childhood and they have one foot in the world of adulthood. And it leaves them like very contradicted. And so teenagers have no memory at all. You can tell them, hang up your towel, put your clothes in the laundry, um, go and turn the oven on. And if it requires walking before they reach that task, nothing. Oh, yeah, you did tell me to do that. I got distracted. It's like their minds are gone. And we're like spiritual teenagers sometimes. We have one foot in the world of childhood and one foot in the world of adulthood. And we think about ourselves and we're easily lost and we easily forget. But the Lord says, remember, today if we had time, you would be so encouraged. If we had time and if we had a level of openness here where I could just say, think about the history of your life. Maybe you're 18, maybe you're 22, maybe you're 40, maybe you're 35, maybe you're 63, maybe you're 75. Think about the history of your life. What has God done? Remember. Some of you would say, God has freed me from pornography. Remember. Some of you would say, God has freed me from a life of drug addiction. Remember. Some of you would say, God has freed me from a life of prostitution. Remember. Some of you would say, God has freed me from a life of addiction. God has fr-. Some of you would say, God has freed me simply from myself because I was on a highway to hell because life was all about me, baby, and God has freed me from myself. If we took time to remember, we would literally be overcome with the stories of what God has done in our lives in this little group of people. In like 60 to 80 to 100 people, God has done amazing things, outstanding things, if we would only remember. I can remember times in my life that are like spiritual markers. I don't have time to tell you. When God, sitting in Starbucks, doubting in Nashville, Tennessee, planting a church, knowing almost no one, wondering how God was going to finance that thing, and a stranger asked me while I was reading my Bible, he wrote me a check for $100 on New Year's Day. It was like God was saying, I got you. Stop worrying. I can look back financially and see checks of $20,000 and $40,000 when God just provided. And it wasn't like, oh, well, we were doing okay, but now we got a lot of money. No, it was like, we don't know how we're going to move forward. And the money came in at an amazing time. Wow. It was God. I can remember stories of sitting down with people like Sean, who was agnostic. He read a book over Thanksgiving, and God opened his eyes. He had all these questions about the Bible, and as we talked, he came back to me after the holidays and said, God has drawn me to himself. I'm a follower of Jesus. And we began to talk about it, and Sean was a river guide a few summers later. 
And he saved up his money. He slept in a boat shed all summer so he could save his money. And he wrote one of the first checks to Mercy Hill Church for $1,000. He said, I want to see what God's done in my life in Nashville, done in Memphis. If we would simply remember... I remember sitting down with a lady in a Mexican restaurant. She was uh, Russian descent. She was married to a medical doctor. They had beautiful house in Franklin, everything you could imagine. And she was sick. Something was physically wrong with her. And one of my friends who God had done an amazing work in his life said, I just think God's at work in her life and I've asked her to come and talk with you. And God was drawing this lady to herself. Her husband was a medical doctor. He thought something was physically wrong with her. He'd taken her to the ER. They could found nothing wrong. What was wrong with her was a spiritual sickness. God was drawing her to himself. And in that little that little cheap Mexican restaurant, she came to know Jesus and she surrendered her life to Jesus. And her life looks different today. Her daughters come to know Jesus and have been baptized. Her daughter's family has changed. If we just took time to remember the stories of our lives, those are just the, just the simple short stories where God's pulled back the curtain and said, I'm just gonna let you see just a little bit of my glory. I'm just gonna barely let you come to understand what the kingdom of God looks like when it marches forward. If we would just remember how much more is God doing in our midst even today in the relationships that we had last week, in the interactions, in the conversations that will take place even today as we finish, if we would simply remember God's provision in our life. And last, we can be tenderhearted if we will trust in God's plan. If we will trust in God's plan. I just want to wrap this up by saying this. I'm going to wrap it up real short because I went a little long. Joshua chapter 2, if you read it, what you come to find out is that when the children of Israel were supposed to go into the land, they don't. So later, when they send out spies again, Rahab, a prostitute, gives this report to the spies that she hides on her roof. She says that we were shaking like grasshoppers. We knew that God was on your side. And what she's saying is, we've been fearful of you all along. This land has been yours for the last 40 years. If you would have only trusted the Lord, if you would only have done what God was commanding you to do, not what you thought you could do with man's eyes and man's ears and man's mind, if you would have only trusted in God's plan. Listen, trials and tests, they aren't all bad. We hate them during the process, but they serve to strengthen our faith. Trials grow us up into Jesus. Tests help us to evaluate what we really know. Like we think we really know how to follow God. We think we really know the Lord. But if you've ever tried to teach um, a young person a simple task, um, something that looks really easy, like uh, hammering, using a hammer, or using an ax, Oh, yeah, if you try to instruct a young person, I don't know, I can do that, I'm good, nope. Oh, you just take that thing and swing it. Okay, well, why don't you try? Ow, that hurts, I can't hit the nail. The ax is stuck in the log and I can't get it out. But I at least finally hit the log after 10 swings. See, it looks really simple. If you see someone swing an ax and split firewood, it looks really simple, it's not. If you've seen someone drive a nail, 
somebody you know can drive a nail in about three swings, you're like, man, that looks so easy. It even looks like fun. It's not. It's not fun or easy. It takes experience. And in the Christian life, it takes more than knowledge. God uses tests and trials in order to give us experience. He strengthens our faith so that we so that it's deeper and that we have the sustaining faith that's needed to be able to walk with him through the tough stuff of life. God allows trials. He even sometimes sends trials into our lives in order that we would seek him, depend on him, and learn to trust him. You look at Jesus' life. The Father sent him out into the desert to be tested. That'll challenge you. Abraham, Moses, David, Joseph, the list goes on and on in the Bible of those God tested in order that their faith would be made perfect in weakness. Today, as we move to a time of reflection, as we move to a time for you to stop and think, okay, we've looked at this great passage in Hebrews. Now, what does this mean for me? As you reflect on this, how might God be testing you? As you think about your life today, are you experiencing trials in your life? If so, how have you responded to them? Have you responded to them with faith? Or are you allowing your heart to become hard? Are you putting up walls? Are you blaming God? Or are you saying, God, I need you. I need to humble myself before you. You know, there's, there's a song and a saying that says, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. That sounds great. It's totally not true. What doesn't kill you might just wound you. What doesn't kill you will not always make you stronger. The response of so many people is to say, when they face trials and when they face tests, is to just try to be strong. You know, even the response we give sometimes, it says, oh, the devil's just trying to get you down. We need to be really careful with that because sometimes the devil is trying to get us down, but sometimes God is also drawing us to himself. Sometimes it's God who places trials in our life. And if we just say the devil's just trying to get you down, then the common response is, well, then just get up. Just be strong. But we, we don't need to respond in that way. We need to respond with humility in which we say, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. And as we respond to God in weakness, God makes us strong. God gives us faith to believe because we come to see him for who he is. Our provider, our rescuer, our savior, our sustainer. We come to see Jesus rightly as king and we follow him with all of our lives. And that's what God desires he follows lives. He desires lives that are totally committed to him for his glory and for our joy. You say, why would I follow a God who would bring tests into my life? Because he's most concerned with his glory and your joy. Because as you come to know him deeper, it may mean that you experience hardships in this life, but as you come to know him deeper, you experience not happiness, but joy. Something that the world cannot take away. How are you responding to the tests and the trials that are in your life? The band's going to come forward. I'm going to pray. And then I just want to ask the band, I just want to ask the band to take about a minute and just play before we begin to sing and just give us some time to reflect.
to reflect on what God's doing in our life, what he's called us to. Are you being faithful to what God's called you to? Do you know what God's called you to? Are you trusting in him? Let's pray together. Father, we need to trust you more. Uh, God, we are weak. And uh, God, we are prone to wander. And God, doubt fills our hearts and our lives on a daily basis. I know it fills mine. I know just on Friday, I felt like I can't do one more appointment. I can't answer one more phone call. I'm just tired. I'm overwhelmed. And God, you give strength to the weary. And God, you give rest to the brokenhearted. And God, you make us strong. God, not so we can say, look at me, but so we can say, look at Jesus. God, we need strength to follow you. God, I pray for those who are here today who have not responded well to tests and trials that have come into their lives. They've become hard-hearted. They don't feel you anymore. Their hearts have become callous. God, I pray today through the work of your Holy Spirit as they humble themselves before you, that you would lower the walls and melt their hearts, that you would give them hearts of flesh. God, I pray for the man and woman who are in the room today who have knowledge of you but have never trusted you with their life. They've never surrendered their life to you. I pray they'd come to know you today. Pray that they would talk with me or a friend. I pray that they would kneel before you in humility and say, Jesus, you are king of my life. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are serious about pursuing your glory for our joy. God, that we wouldn't look at this world and ask, how can I make a name for myself? Or how can I make a name for your church? Or how can I do good things? But God, that we would seek to glorify you, to follow you fully in all that you've called us to do in order that your name and renown would echo forth in a way that is simply incredible because of the works of your spirit. Jesus, we need you. Draw near to us. Holy Spirit, we believe you're here and that you can work in our lives now. We pray that you would do that, that you would bring truth to us that you would tear down walls. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would remind us that you're a friend of sinners, that you've loved us with an everlasting love, love that can't be earned, it can't be bought, can only be received. God, would you give us humble hearts to receive what we need to receive even during this time. Uh, Chris and I, we're up front. Um, We'd love to pray with you. If you would like someone to pray with, Take these next few minutes and respond as the Spirit speaks to you.